Yeah, on. I decided to take the bass line that time. Who's notice gonna, that? Who's going to make... I did notice that. Who's going to make the first... Hello, hello my king. <laughs> oh, my king. My king. Who's going to make the first, like, fish pun? I didn't know. Yeah. I figured we'd already get to it. You know, like the first, yeah. like, let's go fishing. Yeah. Or, hey, yeah. did you catch any fish today? Something or, about bait or. Right. You know. Right. Or the, the nubs and tea classic. Want to go see fish and go see fish. <laughs> <laughs> Is that going to come up in the uh, Wonder Stories? Oh, yeah. Uh, nice. Uh, yeah. Nice. Uh, welcome to episode 68 and and we're we're back it you know feels like riding a bike nub feels like putting on a raggedy old pair of kicks you know like so riding far, a bike if you uh fall on your face yeah so far in the first minute and a half at least everything's going swimmingly but uh we haven't done this in a while and uh, i don't know if we if we if we uh, appear to be rusty you know that that would be why but so far i mean we played the song that went off without a hitch we can hear each other see each other you look amazing i mean <laughs> yeah you look really great yeah i got a haircut yesterday just for the occasion you know so high and tight by the way a wow. little bit a little bit yeah i you know i'm doing the corporate is that like your corporate look yeah mostly you know i i have pictures pop up every so often on my on my screensaver you know do you even need screensavers anymore is there like a functional reason for it used to be so that like the screens were so shitty that like you didn't want the image to like freeze on the screen right but functionally i don't think you technically need them anymore do you no because computers is like go to sleep now and things like that they have you know, there's more automation and yeah. what happens to a computer when it's left unattended. Yeah. So that was, I knew they had a function. I didn't know the exact function. I think that was the function is that if you had the same image on, on those old screens for too long, that they would like start to create like permanence visually on the screens. Cause they were so crappy. Anyway, I have this screen. Do you remember what a big deal it was though? Your screensaver was, was it's like your, uh, phone background back in the day i mean it was a big deal to have the right screen yeah saver. it was like something it, cool it was part of your identity you know right yeah. Yeah, yeah so my screensaver is are like old pictures and every now and again the ones pop up of me during the uh pandemic um with uh my beard and long hair and you know like sometimes i miss it a little bit but uh the corporate high and tight looks okay too and i, I miss your shaggy pandemic look too. i thought well, it was fabulous and let's yeah. take this, uh, let's, let's go ahead and parlay this into today's episode because, you know, the beard and the shaggy look definitely um, would have made me more on brand, I think, for today's band, right? 
You'd have to uh, go a period of time without showering as well. That's part <laughs> of it. I, I can still, you know, it's funny. The, um, the things that we, from a sensory perspective, remember, I think become waning as we get older, right? From our childhood or from our, our youth. And there's sights and sounds and, you know, things like that, that you have a vivid memory of when you, you know, wearing your twenties and then your thirties, by the time you get the forties, some of those things start to fade a little bit. I can still channel the smell yeah. of the palace of Auburn Hills. When I yep. went to my first grateful dead concert, <laughs> I can so still channel it. Cause it's, it I mean, was, there's, there's a smell in the parking lot. And that's in oh, open yeah. air. That's an open yes. air. Yeah. yeah. But yeah. It's the mix of incense, weed. All right. Definitely some marijuana. Definitely marijuana. It's part of this whole thing. But the overriding yet mixed in stench of humanity yeah. is just, it, 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 that will, like I can in an instant bring back the memory of that. Of that uh, sense. It's true. It's true. Well, we're going to get to a lot of stuff We're, you know, obviously part of the part of the theme today is and, you know, we we touched on the jam band thing a little bit with Brendan Bayless. We we focused on an album for for those guys for Humphreys McGee that was produced and meant to sort of be a bit more mainstream, if you will. And you've seen jam bands do this over time. I, I think of Till the Medicine Takes by Widespread Panic, and you could probably think of uh, at least a couple from The Grateful Dead. Most people would probably point to Terrapin or Shakedown uh, during that um, Arista you know, time period of, of really trying to get a little bit more into the business of selling records and being mainstream and being on trend. And today's album for, from Fish is probably their most notable effort towards that. So we're going to talk about jam bands in the studio, jam bands coming out with their sort of mainstream attempts and sort of the whole thing as a whole, because it's very interesting. It's very interesting musically, and it's very interesting from, uh, you know, sort of the standpoint of the scene, because these things all become sort of a, a scene more so than people focused on the art itself, bro. Right. So, but Hey, before we do that, let's make sure we don't screw this part up. Let's go round and round. No, but we haven't done a round and round in a while. So I'm not sure if it's just what you've been listening to this week or in the last couple of weeks or hell in the last month but uh what do you got yeah i i have purchased and listened to so much music since our last show <laughs> you know, holidays are a good time for that for me it's it's definitely an opportunity to spend a lot of time in the room and put some things on the turntable that i haven't opened yet i i, I must have opened 30 records over the the last month you know just like literally open, like out of the shrink wrap and, and listen to for the first time. I've also been buying a ton of CDs. I don't know how it is for UT, but in our community, we've got like a, it's like a vintage clothing store that sells used CDs for a dollar and like really good stuff that maybe I used to have on CD and then sold. So I'm sort of like 
It's so ridiculous. I'm sort of like replenishing my CD collection because I can buy like 50 of them for 50 bucks. You know what I mean? So I, I will tell you that all three of my, uh, of my round and rounds are things I listen to on CD, not on vinyl. So there you go. First would be, a, a, again, a rather obscure album by uh, Motley Crue. Motley Crue. And that is the 1997 album <laughs> Generation Swine, which is a very cool mm. album. This is what brought the original lineup back together with McMars and uh, Vince Neil, of course, after some time with not the original lineup. Cool album. They're definitely tapping into the grunge thing. It's got a couple of their best songs they ever did, Afraid and Flush and... If I remember correctly, a great album from Tommy Lee, um, which obviously a huge part of Motley Crue, with his uh, three drumsticks that he has. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes. He carries three drumsticks with him. Yes. He does. He carries three. Yep. Yes, exactly. Uh, yeah. He, he, I mean, Tommy Lee, there was not, he never had a bad album and this was, uh, yeah, he, he's shined quite a bit on Generation Swine for sure. So that's first. Second is something called In the Name of My Father, the Zep Set. T, this is someone you're very familiar with, and that is the Jason Bonham band. I know you like his, you know, back in the day studio material. This is, again, from 1997, and this was a, a live set that Jason Bonham did of all Led Zeppelin songs. Oh, yeah, yeah. A bunch of, like, kind of, I don't know, guest musicians, whatever you want to call it. Well, it's the Jason Bonham band, so I, I'm assuming they were all sort of members of that. I thought anyway. you were going to say the art of timekeeping, which uh, yeah, just love, but, you, uh, you but love no, that's that a good, one. that's a good choice too. It is. It's really good. I love listening to Jason Bonham play Led Zeppelin music. This set's really good. It does not even come close to comparing to celebration day, which, you know, of course has Jason Bonham on the drums with amazing. Amazing. I mean, the cashmere on that is oh, un- unbelievable. I mean, all in, in, Jason is so dialed in to Zeppelin music. Of course it's in his blood. So it's a cool album. It's kind of obscure. Like I said, I found this for, you know, a dollar on CD, which was nice. And then lastly, T just kind of been getting all lit up again uh, with the debut album from Buck Cherry. Hmm. Kind of a band that's been forgotten, really. I know they're still on the touring circuit, I think, in some way, shape, or form, but Buck Cherry came along in the late 90s. This was 1999, and uh just as like a balls to the wall rock band. I remember hearing for the movies for the, which actually we've covered in our acoustic thing. Um, back then, you know, when that album first came out and being like, Ooh, these guys are good, you know, cause lit up and, uh, uh, what was the other hit off that album? Was this, was sorry out yet or no, that was later. Um, so I but- guess it was lit up and probably eventually for the movies, but right. Ryden was the one that came off on the second album. Do you remember that one? Everyone take your place in the video. (laughs) The video is just the singer Buck Cherry. I forgot. He's so great. He's so he's He's just like covered in tattoos. Yeah, all riled up all the time. It's great. The video for Ryden, this was an ongoing joke with my, you know, my good friend from college, Oleander, who's a listener. Hey, hey, Ali. Um, the video for Ryden, all it was was this guy, I wish I could remember his name. Um, but it was basically the lead singer of Buck Cherry, Josh Todd. That was his name. It just came to me. It was Josh Todd just standing there shirtless because the guy never wore a shirt. No, never. Like just in front of like, I don't know, like a white background, just like dancing, singing the song. That was the entire video. <laughs> so you guys, would, you guys would sit there and eat wing slingers and just laugh at Josh Todd. Yes, totally. Yeah. It's an yeah. incredible video. Nice. I'm sure it's super outdated by now. But uh, yeah, Buck Cherry, that's the third one. So that's what's running around for me, T. What, uh, how did you spend your month spinning around? What's running around for you? 
you know, I, I, I do this thing. It's more song related where I, uh, you know, sort of, uh, spend a few months where if I hear something on satellite radio or whatever, I'll mark it down and then eventually, de- you know, buy it because I still purchase music and, and get it into my collection. So I'll get to some of those songs on the uh, what's in your head. But as far as uh, records go, uh, I've been uh, there's a new album from the Verve Pipe that I'm interested in hearing. Haven't really gotten to it yet. And I think it's an adult album, you know, not a, not a children's record. You, know? you will never forgive them for that. And, nah, I mean, you know, whatever. <laughs> that pissed you off so much. Uh, yeah, yeah. It was kind of. I, I don't think. I don't think I was the only one. You know, but no, uh, you were not. No. But uh, Threads is the name of their album. The second is is this great band from the '80s, uh, The Alarm, which obviously m- many people know their song uh, "Rain in the Summertime." Uh, Spirit of '76 was a, a big hit for them. And this is, uh, this is their compilation album called standards and, uh, you know, really, really solid group, really good collection from them. And then the third is by steel breeze, you know, the band that, uh, was, was famous for, uh, you don't want me anymore and lost in the eighties. It's kind of one of those, like almost like a night ranger, you know, kind of like a, just sort of crappy, you know, eighties rock group but 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 great at the same time you know so uh steel breeze one of the great album covers too it's like so 80s it's got this terrible font and this like purple swoon of design it's you know kind of rules so that is what is uh round and round for me buddy i you know we we already kind of touched on i think some of the um main things that we want to talk through today you bring a really strong depth of knowledge related to the Grateful Dead, where a lot of this started. And, and prior to, you know, sort of the, the mid to late 90s, when this thing really started to turn into more of a genre for the masses. So any initial thoughts just on the entire jam band spectrum or things that you think would be um, good to sort of paint the broader picture before we dig into the uh, record and certainly dig into some additional thoughts. Obviously, this was Fish's um, attempt, I think, at being a little bit more, at least as mainstream as they as they can be. And we'll talk about production and all those type of things. But any initial kind of broad thoughts on on jam bands going more mainstream or just you know, the dead or, or anything that you see kind of within the scene right now, uh, new blaze. I think there's always been a conflict between the scene and the music. Even as a young lad, I wasn't really thinking this, the grateful dead concert when I was 15 and 16, because I was just so blown away that I was enjoying every second. And thank God I did because a year later we, we wouldn't have Jerry and, and, uh, those days were going to be done at least somewhat. <laughs> I guess I've seen the Grateful Dead like five times since, but <laughs> yeah, you know, some, but some iteration of some it, iteration yeah. of it. Exactly. But there's always been a, a conflict between the music and the scene. And as a kid, I was always um, kind of upset at the fact that some people would just be into these bands because of the t-shirts or because of the spinning around in the aisleways at the shows because of potentially the, the you know, the drugs, uh, aspect of it, you know, just kind of tripping out and, and, and enjoying yourself. 
I mean, as a kid, I, I had this conflict internally because it was like, why aren't these people here for the music? Because the music is incredible. I still feel that way when I go to an Humphreys McGee show. And we talked with Bayless about that. You know, it's certainly a fish show. I mean, these guys are exceptional musicians. And there's some people that go that have no clue that they've put out this outstanding studio material and that they have a lot to say musically more than just come out and lose yourself and have a good time. So it, it sounds a little tight wad and I get it. And I'm, you know, I'm aware of that, but I, I will always feel like a lot of these bands do not get their, their just, you know, credit when it comes to what they do musically, that it's more about what they do visually from a branding perspective or just the event of their shows. Now there's a couple exceptions to that. There's a couple artists that are within the jam band scene that I think suck, but I think they suck because of their music, not because of how fun the show is. Right. So how much, how much you can dance to it, you know, right. Yeah. The dance ability. <laughs> you love that dance ability factor. Oh, you get, music, you get a yeah. dance to everything. You know? <laughs> so that's going to continue to be an ongoing theme as we talk about this album and this band, just like every other band. It would be nice if these quote unquote jam bands are more appreciated for their music more than just the event of their shows or their t-shirts or whatever, you know? Yeah. The, the scene element of this is definitely an interesting part. There's one other part that I want to touch on before we really dig into it here. And, and that is um, cause there's so much, you can romanticize so much of the touring element and the jamming element and the sort of escapism element of what these bands meant to a lot of people. And to your point, certainly went well beyond the music in many cases. And hey, with any art, that's okay. Sometimes it goes beyond the art and into what your perceptions are, what your sensations are. That's all part of this. But one of the things that I think is really interesting about this whole thing that gets highly overlooked within this scene is the commerce element. I mean, the Grateful Dead made hand over fist money in their touring. I mean, this was a stadium band that in an era, at least going into the 90s, where they were still active, you know, you had U2 putting on shows that costed, you know, $2 million just to build and execute. These were still, you know, seven guys or whatever it was coming out with amplifiers and instruments and no screens or production or backdrop and playing and would just sell incredible amounts of tickets and merchandise and licensing and all these things. I mean, there is a certain, as much as people, again, sort of romanticized a lot of this stuff, there was a certain, and they were able to get away with it a little bit under the radar, capitalistic nature to a lot of this. And, and you know, Kiss, for example, could just unapologetically go out and uh, license their uh, branding and, and, you know, sell everything under the mummy. It's become almost like, a joke with uh, Gene Simmons and all those type of things of how they turned that into a commerce empire. In a lot of ways, the dead and some of these others aren't that much different. Um, but, but these guys nub never shied away from the, the uh, 
monetary and monetization and capitalization nature of uh, of this brand of entertainment and this brand of of music and performance, right? Well, there's a reason I mentioned T-shirt earlier because the reason why that's stuck in in my persona forever is because I I remember it drove me nuts how many people T wore a Grateful Dead T-shirt that could not name one song aside from Truck. <laughs> that used to drive you batshit, you know, it and did. so <laughs> it did because it was a fashion thing. Now, looking back, a little bit older, a little bit more capitalistic now. Uh, you know, in terms of being 40 something versus, you know, 15. Now I really get it. And I, I'm, I admire what they did from a branding perspective, but yeah, I mean, people were wearing grateful dead t-shirts that had no clue what the band even sounded like anybody who's fascinated with business and music. There's three kind of case studies that should be examined. You mentioned kiss. I wouldn't say that because they unapologetically did not retain street cred. Grateful dead. Fish and Humphreys McGee, three bands who did it very differently from one another. I mean, Fish was probably the least commercial and the most street cred, but still very capitalistic on a lot of the decisions that they've made. Sure. But those three, if you really want to learn how a business can run while maximizing every dollar, yet being credible and keeping your street cred and keeping your quote unquote cool value, which is still one of the most important things in the market today. Those three have all done it very differently, but all did it very, very right. Grateful Dead, even though they were selling bears and ties, still kept their cool factor. Yeah. Humphreys McGee has done it with, with technology. They've done it with like just staying really modern. They're younger guys. And trust me, that's a very well-run business as well. That's, that's thriving, at least pre-pandemic. Fish kept everything quite hippie compared to everybody else, in essence but still found ways to tap into the mainstream market and, and, you know, salvage every last dollar as Johnny Rotten would say, when there's a dollar in it, you know, <laughs> as he was talking about turning Stick. public image limited into a business. Right. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah, yeah, exactly. But fish did it in a way that was much more kind of hippie, much more underground, but still fascinating business to look at. So it's funny, you know, when we were 16 years old, the idea of us 30 years later talking about the business of these bands <laughs> seems like a long way ago, but uh but yeah, you make a great point. I mean, they they the branding of these bands is in some cases just as important as the music for better or worse. Well, let's get into it, baby. The Jam Band Studio Album and what we're going to focus on is an album from four pretty damn good musicians from the Vermont band Fish. Let's get into the nerdy deeds. You want some dirty deeds? Yeah! You want some dirty deeds? Billy Breathes was released on October 15th, 1996. Nubs and I were starting to think about graduating from high school. Where to go to college, all these type of things. This was, I guess, our junior year in high school. It was on Electra Records. Now, one of the key parts of this is, you know, kind of the production approach. It was the band's sixth album. And prior to that point, most of the records that they had released were on pretty thin production. And, and most people, especially within the college scene, sort of remember 
one of their very early albums, Junta, uh, may have been their first official album, actually, and had a lot of those fish classics on it. You know, when you think about Fee and when you think about You Enjoy Myself and these type of things, but still very thin uh, from a production standpoint. And, and that was kind of part of the charm and part of, you know, when you think about OAR or some of these other groups that started within the college scene, production was not terribly important. You know, it was okay to be minimalist. It was okay to be thin. Well, on Billy Breathes Fish Tap, Steve Lillywhite, who, you know, probably was the opposite of that. Now, Lillywhite is not a tremendous overproducer, right? Not, not somebody who's looking to overlayer. But by Fish's standards, based on the five albums that preceded this, Steve Lillywhite and working with Bob Ludwig on the mastering and engineering was a huge step up for them production-wise. And certainly this was set out from the onset to be a much more lush, much more layered effort from them. And you can hear it uh, relative to, to certainly the albums that preceded this, but even some of the albums that followed. You know, they definitely didn't continue. Um, they did in some cases. But they didn't continue fully down the road of being highly produced in those things. It was recorded in Woodstock, New York. Um, apparently, all of the sessions were early in the morning. So that's kind of interesting. It hit number seven on the Billboard 200. So it did well. It was a good record for these guys. I believe that that was the highest they got uh, on the Billboard charts. It followed up. I've talked a little bit about a live one here. Uh, which was their double live record. And Nub, I, I feel like it's one of the best live albums of all time. The reason for that is because I think that this is a very challenging band to capture live and have it, you know, result in something clean and tight. Now, I love listening to their live recordings and, you know, there's no shortage of those out there. And I think they're fascinating. And I think that the way that they improvise and the way that they're loose, Sometimes a little sloppy, but that's all part of the charm. But a live one captured them in as buttoned up of a fashion as you'll hear it. There's amazing versions of Harry Hood, of You Enjoy Myself, of Bouncing Around the Room. I mean, things that, you know, have become staples. And I, I really think that, you know, the performance and the production on a live one were just absolutely uh, amazing, to be honest with you. Um, one of the interesting things about Billy Breathes is half of these songs had been played live and half of them hadn't. So when we talked to Brendan Bayless about Mantis, none of those songs had been played live, which was kind of interesting. You've seen some releases over time from jam bands where nearly all of the songs have been on on tour uh, prior to the release. But a little bit of a unique play for Fish here in that there was as heavy of an amount of songs that hadn't been played live yet as you typically saw from them by the time they came around to a release. And we'll cover off on which ones of those had been played previous and which of those hadn't. One of the things that's really interesting about the record and, you know, I always nub, I always felt like this record should have done better. Granted, it did well, but when you kind of revisit it and when you think about it in of its time. It's some of the better composition that they've had, and it's some of the more radio-friendly composition that they've had. And one of the things that Trey Anastasio has mentioned is that they really blew it on the album cover. The cover is this like giant sort of, to use the spinal tap, unappetizing picture 
of um Mike Gordon's face, the bass player, kind of making this weird face. And Trey would later say that it ruined the album. I mean, that's a little strong, but I definitely don't think it helped. It was an early example of a selfie. I guess this was a picture that Mike Gordon took of himself and they thought it was funny. And, you know, not to get too into the psychology of an album cover here, but no, I've always felt like Fish just had a terrible time getting out of their own way. And, you know, they, they, they were born and bred in Burlington, Vermont. And I think, you know, sort of hit the mainstream, if you will, certainly from a touring standpoint and certainly, you know, entertainment standpoint, but I always felt like they were a little bit conflicted and never wanted to, you know, get away from being too organic or too, you know, and at times, you know, this spontaneity that I think they were always so interested in actually hurt them. And there were moments where they could have been more thoughtful and weren't even a stupid album cover in this case, you know, if they would have probably thought through that a little bit or probably um, decided, let's not just be spontaneous here and put something up there that we think is funny. Let's put something up there that will actually help the brand of the band a little bit, help the performance of the record a little bit. So I think that is a little bit symbolic of one of probably the many things we could touch on. Where if Fish really wanted to get a little bit more mainstream and a little bit more mass and broad in their appeal, in some cases, they could have been a little bit more thoughtful, a little less spontaneous, and maybe gotten out of their own way a little bit. So let's be honest, it's a dreadful sleeve. But but Fish were the masters of horrible album covers. Horrible. I mean, I can't think of one that really worked. They never got it right. You know, they needed to go to the Grateful Dead and guest school of branding, you know, established a, a brand identity for your band and stick with it. I mean, one of the problems is not just the, you know, terrible picture that's on the cover, but like the font of fish is different than 10 other fonts that I've seen for fish. They just never established anything and stayed consistent. I do like their kind of childish approach to the business of music. It did help them to stay focused on their music, but they needed somebody in their lives telling them, guys, this would be a good career move not to put Mike Gordon's face on this <laughs> album cover. Right. And it might be, you know, a good move for you guys to establish a consistent brand identity because that's sort of what bands in your scene do. I like that they kept everything, you know, they're, they're kind of silly guys. They are. They're, yeah. Trey Anastasio is a, an awesome guy. If you ever just listen to him talk, there's a cool documentary that follows him around during one of his solo tours or something. I remember watching. I mean, he is a guy to root for. He's pure. But somebody needed to at some point tell these guys, this might be good for your career, you know, to, <laughs> to do this and have them actually listen. I don't know how Electra even allowed it, to be honest with you. But that's sort of on par with Fish. They had, you know, they, they, they never had an album cover I liked, I don't think. If I, great points. If I had to guess, you know, I, I, Electra probably felt like the material was really strong. So if they want to be idiots about their cover and their sort of overall branding of it, then, you know, we're willing to roll the dice. But yeah, I, I do think that, and Trey agrees that that, you know, agreed later at least that that was something that kind of hurt them. Let's talk about the band members really quick. And then I think we might have some decent wonder stories around this one. Trey Anastasio, you mentioned, is, you know, the, the front man and, and primary 
composer, I think is fair to say, although they all contribute and obviously lead guitarist and just a outstanding guitar player, you know, very creative, has every trick in the bag, every move in the book. He's classically trained, but also a street fighter on the instrument. And, and when you get that combination going, it's almost like a Steve Lukather type thing. It can be deadly. And, uh, you know, Trey's been able to perform with fish. He's been able to perform uh, as a solo artist. He's been able to perform with different iterations of backing musicians. And it ultimately all comes down to his ability to play guitar in a very creative way, in a very showman type way. He is definitely a showman on the guitar. Uh, and you know, when you get into some of his, there's some great videos out there of him with his rig and his effects and, and his setup. And, you know, he's a real technician, you know, more so than you'd think, uh, in terms of utilizing this hollow body style guitar and utilizing this sustain approaches and mechanisms that he does and effects and all these things. It's very, very interesting and very cool. Love watching him play and a great singer. You know, he doesn't have the widest range in the universe, but he has an incredibly distinctive voice. I mean, you know, it's Trey no matter what. And that, there's something to be said for that. John Fishman on the drums, maybe the most important member of the band as far as output. You know, Trey would be Trey and he'd be doing his thing and the other guys would be doing their thing. But I don't think Fish would be Fish if it weren't for John Fishman. I have this uh, this this friend, Bridget, hopefully she's listening, uh, who is a enormous Fish fan, has followed them for years and, you know, has told me repeatedly. And I agree with her the more I have sort of thought about it, that the band wouldn't be the band without Fishman. And uh, when you look at their live performance or when you look at the ability to take some of the composition and make it very unique and make it their own and make it in the voice of the band, uh, it's very cool. And I know you appreciate it, Nub, for the drummer to have that ability. And I give John a ton of credit for that. Mike Gordon on the bass, huge part of this. But, you know, Mike Gordon is not the first to play bass in this style for a jam band. There's a lot of Phil Lesh there obviously, and uh, very influenced, but, you know, Mike's uh, moves and licks and and using the bass as a lead instrument in many cases and using it as the backbone underneath uh, what Trey's doing at times or what, you know, the other guys are doing at times, uh, tremendously important. He sings on a few songs. He's composed um, several songs by himself. And, uh, you know, big part of this band, I think a little bit, he's a little bit Phil Lash light. And I mean that as a compliment, not as an insult, but uh, Mike Gordon on the bass and then Paige McConnell on the keys. Very critical part of this as well. A very critical part of vocal harmonies too. Uh, you know, heavy contributor in terms of a lot of the jam elements, but a lot of the composition and layering elements as well. Paige does a great job. These are four tremendous musicians, Nub. I don't care if you're sort of not into this scene or if you're not into this band or you know, whatever it may be, anybody who goes to see this band live cannot come away from it without saying, wow, those are four really good musicians. So take a, take a chew of your apple and then let me know what you think. <laughs> yeah. This apple's very good. The thing I, one of the things I like most about fish is the lineup really never changed. I think there was one other member who was there at the very beginning or something, but it's been those four guys the whole way. They haven't made substitutions. Nobody has died tragically or anything you know it's just been a rock solid lineup and there's something to be said for that most of the other jam bands have had changes because they've been around for so long 
all four members are sort of indispensable. You know, you can't remove one of them and have fish still be fish. You really cannot. They each have such unique tone and they bring so much to the table because it's a true band. You know, Trey Anastasio might be the quote unquote leader, but all four of them are so significant to the entire operation. So I just love that it's the same four. I love that rock solid consistency. I think that says a lot about who they are as people for sure. Well, Nub, let's get into it. And this doesn't have to just be about fish. This can be about, you know, you've already mentioned a, a, a memorable show within the jam band community. Uh, but really, we can speak to the scene. We can speak to the band. We can speak to, you know, bass teachers and mom's sort of boyfriends. Wherever you want to take it, buddy, let's get into the wonder stories. Nub, uh, a lot to uh, recall, I think, about this band and this time period. So what do you got? There's so much, man. I, I'm sure the holes that I leave a void, you will try and fill in because we had pretty shared experiences with this band. So I was a deadhead, a true legit deadhead when I was, you know, in eighth grade, ninth grade, 10th grade, just super in the grateful dead. And I always kind of saw fish as like a threat to that because people would compare them. My earliest memory of fish is, is our mom who we've mentioned many times on the podcast. She went and saw them because she did have this quasi boyfriend who was also your bass guitar teacher which is hilarious. Yeah. We've talked about this dude uh, a couple of times. Yeah, <laughs> we have. <laughs> and he was really into fish, even though he was also into rush and stuff like that. Our mom ended up going to a fish show, I think completely, you know, unknowingly about what she was about to see. I remember her coming back and saying, well, the drummer wore a dress and they jumped on trampolines during the show. <laughs> right. That was like her two major takeaways. And I knew that this was supposedly the next Grateful Dead, which pissed me off. I didn't like that. I didn't like anyone comparing anyone to the Grateful Dead because you could compare fish to the Grateful Dead in a number of ways, but like musically, they're, they're very, very distinct from one another. And so I didn't like that, but I was like, okay, maybe I'll stay open to this. And my intro to the band was a live one, which you bought. You've talked about it on round and round before. And bouncing around the room was the entry point for me, which is an incredible song. It's so good. But the version on the live one is the, the, the penultimate version of that song. No doubt. The studio version is fun, but the way the song builds, the crowd noise that they incorporate, Trey's voice, the guitar at the end is just soaring. I mean, Fishman plays it perfectly. There, there's so many yeah. versions of this where he gets a little off or doesn't hit that cymbal crash properly or whatever it may be. And yeah, it's a, it's a perfect version of it. I, I wouldn't, you just use the word. I wouldn't use it a lot in music. It is a perfect rendition of that song. And one that I still listen to all the time. So that was big. And then we, we ended up seeing them on the live one tour. We went to the palace of Auburn Hills again, smelly, not as smelly as grateful dub, but still smelly. And you know, I was sort of, it, it was okay. I was a little bored. I remember they, they just didn't play any material that I knew. So it's on me. It's not on them, but it was cool to see. It did not compare to the Grateful Dead show. And I kept comparing, I kept doing this thing that I'd always do where it's like, Oh, this, this isn't as cool as the dead, or this doesn't sound as good as the dead, you know, cause you're comparing to the, you know, the original, the legend. 
But I do remember that moment. I remember being there. I do have some memories of that. And then since we've seen fish a few times, went and saw them with you a couple times in the last 10 years, and they've been uh, fantastic, right? I mean, it's been a fun night of music and dancing and, you know, lots of substances all around. And, you know, it's, it's fun. It's fun to see them still doing what they did. They took some time off. I remember I kind of forgot about them. What did they, did they take 10 years off? Something like that. I mean, it was quite a long, you know, Trey was doing the Trey band and, you know, even Gordon had something going, you know, yeah, they, they've definitely had fits and starts and breaks and those type of things uh, related to their touring and their recording for sure. For sure. And then the phrase that has remained and will remain in you and I's lexicon, the want to go see fish that was said <laughs> bass teacher, quasi boyfriend. Somehow we ended up in the conversation when they were going to go see. Yeah. Fish. Uh, yeah. Right. He must've said that like six times. Want to go see fish. Want to go see fish. <laughs> <laughs> and our mom was like, I mean, yeah, I guess. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> what do you mean? You know? He probably really only said it like twice, but. In our retelling of, of, of the story, he says it like 14 times. You know? When have we ever been known to embellish anything? Yeah. You yeah. know, come on, seriously. Yeah, fair so, point. I don't know that that's, that's, there's a lot there, but it all revolves around my experiences with the Grateful Dead and that sort of 15, 16 year old era. I think we were 16 when we saw, if I remember right T, you'll have to correct me on this. I think fish was the first show we ever went to that we drove to ourselves. It could have been, and, remember we took, who, and we took girls. Yes. That was part yes. of it too. So yeah. So, all right. So fill in the holes, T. What, what did I miss? And what is your fish <laughs> you wondrous know, story? You didn't miss a lot. I mean, the show in 97 is memorable because it was the first time we ever saw them. It was an interesting set. If you look back, it was one that, you know, had a lot of long, especially in the, in the second set. It was one of those fish sets where there were like four songs and they were all pretty drawn out, but it was neat. It was something you hadn't seen before. It was definitely a bit more, um, it wasn't as lively as a Grateful Dead experience because, you know, there was definitely a more festive element to a Dead show compared to a Fish show, which was a little bit more, certainly not intense or anything, but more focused on the musicality, the jams. Um, so there was a little bit of a different atmosphere just in general, but it was still cool. It was musical more so than the dead. And that's not to take away anything from the dead's execution, but it was definitely you're wowed by these four guys up there producing the elements and producing the sound and producing the experience that they are. It was still very minimalist, which was also cool because at that time, you know, especially these arena shows, you know, you think about U2 and you think about all this stuff going on, that there was so much production and so many bells and whistles that seeing, you know, four guys get up there in a huge arena and do what they were doing was very cool from an ambiance standpoint, but also from a musical standpoint. And that's what I think these guys were always very strong in letting the music do the talking to your earlier point. Two other things for me, I went and saw these guys uh, two nights in Alpine Valley up in East Troy, Wisconsin, with a couple of buddies, one in particular, Augs, that was a huge fish fan. And that was really fun because I hadn't seen the band in probably since that 1996 show. So it had been forever. And and I think this was their sort of one of their returns. It was kind of like, we're back and we're 
going back to Alpine Valley, which is a beautiful, you know, amphitheater uh, environment. And we drove out to Wisconsin and stopped in Madison in the way. I mean, it was a great trip. And that was the show, one of the shows where I saw them play 2001 for the first time. And it, it's an experience. It's really cool. And, you know, often you're hearing what it is and it's like, oh, okay, no big deal. They're just playing the, you know, theme from 2001. What's the official name of that again, by the way? Also Sprata Zenkaya or whatever. Yeah. Yeah. Also yeah. Spratch Zenkaya or something. Um, Elvis is what I think of often with that one. But yeah, to- also, totally. Yeah. But also definitely think of fish and playing that in, two, in uh, 2010, playing 2001 and 2010 at Alpine Valley. But, you know, you often just either see what they're doing on stage or, you know, you, you um, hear what they're playing. But when you're in the crowd during that, when they hit that, when they hit that first, da da, like thousands of people chuck uh, glow sticks up in the air. So it's just this explosion of glow sticks that everyone just throws up in the air and they all land on you. It's insanely cool. You know, it's insanely cool. Um, and I also remember they played a great version of Cavern, which they often did to close out the set, um, which is a a crowd favorite and one that I hadn't heard before. So. Great shows at Alpine Valley. And then the last thing I, I would note, this is a little bit obscure, but when you and I went to Bonnaroo in 2004, Fish was on one of their breaks, one of their hiatuses. And I remember, I don't know if you remember this, one of the coolest sets we saw was Mike Gordon's solo project. And, you know, it was obviously very bass driven, but he also had a great band with him. And they were playing this really cool up-tempo stuff that was really neat. I think it was all instrumental, if I remember correctly. But I remember walking away from that being like, that was really cool. Who was that? Like, I wasn't putting it all together. And it was like, oh, that's the bass player from Fish. And that was one of the more, there were a lot of memorable moments during that Bonnaroo, you know, when you think of Mars Volta's Secret Machines and Widespread Panic sets and all those type of things. But I do remember, and it was raining, I remember as well. We were walking out of the tent. It was pouring on our heads and we didn't care because we were young and dumb and didn't care about anything. And having a very good time. And having a really <laughs> good time. Just the two of us. And and uh, I was living in New York and you were living here and we, we, you know, we weren't seeing a ton of each other. So we, we met down there and it was, uh, it was brilliant. That was not, um, he, Mike Gordon did do solo work, but this is significant because I really got into this whole thing, but that was the a Benevento Russo duo that's with right. Mike Gordon on bass. Yeah, yes, that, that's, that's what right. it was. And that's why it was so funky because yeah. it was those guys. Yeah. Yeah. No, you're exactly right. You're exactly right. So yeah, some cool stuff related to this band, you know, through our history and uh, Hey, anytime that this, uh, this band can be one of our first opportunities to drive gals to a concert, just us, no adults. It's uh makes for a fairly memorable, Fairly important experience. Now, buddy, say we get into this track by track on Billy Breathes. I am ready, man. Let's drop the needle. Well, this will probably bring back a lot of memories uh, for people. I know that uh, I was telling uh, Mrs. Toph, who uh, who dug into some fish during her uh, college years. Um, Probably mostly due to the dude she was hanging out with, you know? Yeah. Maybe a little, maybe a substance or two happening during that. But I was telling her about, you know, that we were going to do Billy Breathes and we ended up flipping through the tracks 
and uh, and she remembered most of them, but remembered more interestingly enough on Junta than on this. But it was uh, kind of a nice uh, walk through memory lane a little bit, which uh, I think part of this track by track will probably take some people back to those years and maybe even a couple of tunes that you didn't think you knew, but you do. But why don't we dig into it with track one, one of the more well-known from this album and from this era of fish and that is free. Very melodic, you know, with the piano part and the piano layering, the vocal harmonies, a sound that, you know, was pretty lush at the time for this band. And certainly, you know, I I think this was designed to be a a single and and you'll hear that a lot throughout the track by track of, you know, tunes that were that were made to be played live, of course, but but also made for radio and freeze no exception to that really like Fishman's drumming, you know, his right hand as far as touch and those type of things on on the ride and on the hat is always a very special part of of his drumming and i'm glad they captured that on free within the studio nub what do you think of track one and the start that we get off to here on billy breathes this i I don't know if you know this but this was a pretty important song to me in high school it was one of those kind of listen to if i'm down sort of deals which i had a collection of because I was a sensitive Were you down a lot, buddy? Lad. Were you down a lot? <laughs> you didn't seem down a lot to me. <laughs> I would hide in my room and listen to Free, my fish. <laughs> right. I thought this was a magnificent song. I still do. I think, again, it's that swirling guitar work that Anastasio seems to be able to find a way to weave into any melody. It's got a great middle. I really, really like the middle. It's very commercial, the middle section. You could tell that Lily White was like, Hey, you know, if we do this in the middle, you might get played on the radio. It's got a nice little setup to that outro. The outro is kind of glorious. I, I, yeah, it's, it's always to me been a very uplifting song. And as a teenager, um, it spoke to me for for some reason. I'm not sure exactly why. The music had a lot to do with that. Maybe the lyrics to an extent, even though we're not big lyric guys, you and I. But yeah, this was one of those kind of move me songs that if I was ever you know, a little down in the dumpers I would listen to and maybe it would remind me that life wasn't so bad when you're <laughs> 16, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Well, I need more meant- music like that. Now that I'm 42, life isn't so bad when you're 42, you know? Yeah, exactly. Well, you mentioned Lily White. I mean, you know, Lily White's a, a British producer. We touched on it in the nerdy deeds, but let's keep in mind. I mean, he's won six Grammys. He's worked with, you know, closely with, you know, talking heads and, U2 and Rolling Stones, Peter Gabriel, The Killers, Dave Matthews Band, you know, th- this this is a pro. So to be able to to take the ambiance of some of these songs, and I think you're correct on free, where on its face and when played live, it's okay. But the way they were able to sort of capture the emotion of it and the uplifting nature of it to the point where 16-year-old nubs can sit in his room and, you know, put a smile on his teenage angst you know face uh while listening to it (laughs) yes is is a is a credit to the way they were able to build this track it takes you into track two which gets you a little bit more into something that certainly is a is a rocker 
but probably one that was made to be played live just as much as it was made for the studio, and that's Character Zero. Total jam. I mean, a great uh, progression, uh, great feel. I think everything's hitting on all cylinders from an energy standpoint here with these guys. And, you know, they were great when they were really rocking, but not in a expected jam bandy way, but in a in a true depth sort of way. And I think that Character Zero executes that. It's a great live song. It's a really good track, too, on the record. I'm a big fan, Nub. Me too. Do they still play this one? Oh yeah, they'll pull this out. Will they? Cool. Yeah, I was. I I always wonder kind of what Billy Breathe's songs still make the set. I always wanted to see him play free. Never got to see it. This would have been fun too. It, it's very stadium rock. It really is. I remember thinking when I first heard the album, "Gosh, it, this this is heavy," you know. And and if Fish remains this heavy, I'm gonna like it. And then of course, Fish did not remain this heavy <laughs> right. at any stage, but they never do what you, quite what you want them to do. Correct. Do yeah. Well said. Well said. <laughs> but it, it's fist pumping stadium rock. It really is. Um, and, and this is maybe where Fishman's drumming doesn't quite keep up. I mean, you can almost get that Rick Allen, you know, do God to do it sort of deal going, you know. <laughs> right. But uh, instead, it rolls along with Fishman's, you know, I think in the yeah, I think in the studio, he pulls it off pretty well. But yeah, when you hear him play this song live, he doesn't have that quite that bite that they were able to get from him on these particular takes. You know, yeah, exactly, exactly. But but yeah, really cool moment for Fish to show that that heavier side, one that uh, I wish we would have seen more in the ensuing work. So back from a song that I think was built mostly to be executed live to a song that probably was built for the studio and a very well-known song for fish fans in waste. Probably should have been an enormous hit. And you go back to sort of 96. um, This really fit the vibe. You know, this really fit both the commercial and I think just the rock radio consumer vibe at the time. So surprised that it wasn't a really big hit. I think it's a, a song that probably a lot of more fringe fish fans really love and appreciate. I'm not sure if their hardcore fans are super into it because it is one that you can tell was built a little bit and certainly executed in the studio to be something that had some, some radio appeal. I'm surprised it didn't have more. What do you think of waste? Beautiful song. This one's a beaut. I really like uh, Paige McConnell's piano work. I think it really lifts the thing. It, it does stay in a box. I, I kept waiting for the sun to explode at some point. It sort of does a little bit. I think they could have done something even more grand with, I'm surprised Lily White didn't get him there. Cause if you look at some of what he did with Dave Matthews, yeah, more ballad like songs, I'm, I'm kind of surprised it never got to that level, but yeah, I, I always thought this was a very tender moment in the fish catalog. Really liked it. When I first heard the album that, that this and free really the opening three tracks 
you know, were pretty memorable, but, uh, it was catchy too. You can see, I think this gets the highest rating. If you, you know, listen to this album on streaming platforms, I think that waste is the one that most people listen to, to your point, it's probably not the hardcore fish fans, but it's the more fringy fans, which maybe we're both in that category, but it's a beloved fish song. I wonder, I think they probably still play this one live too, I would guess. I, th- I think so. Um, and, you know, listen, I mean, the album, the, it's a good three track start. I mean, Billy Breeds really gets off to a hot start with those three tracks that each deliver a little bit something different, different tempos, different vibes, but it all sounds cohesive. I don't think, and Lily White did a good job of this. Sometimes this band can be so sporadic and all over the place that it's hard to get a lot of production consistency. Uh, where you feel like it is still under the same roof and under the same collective in, in terms of an album. I feel like you get through those first three tracks and you really get an understanding of what they're doing, even with three really different looks. And I think it's very effective. So here we go. We got some hand claps in this one, Nub. Who would have ever, I bet those guys never thought they'd be putting hand claps in the studio, but they did as we go from waste to taste. Now, I, I like when fish goes in this direction. I think that some of the, uh, you know, sort of they would get a little bit rhythmic and a, a little bit salsa-y and those type of things. I always thought it was very cool. And, and I think that they pull it off well. This is probably one of those songs that Lily White, I would guess, spent a lot of time on in making sure that rhythmically and making sure that in terms of the energy of it, it comes through nicely. Obviously a great drum performance. Want to make sure and get that drum lick in there for you, buddy uh, from Fishman. But I actually think after you get through the first three, it's nice to get a little bit of this different direction. And I think they pull it off well, studio wise with taste. There's some composition aspects of it that I have a problem with. First of all, it continues this thing that you talked about in the Nerdy Deeds so well about that this is sort of the commercial album from Fish, which is interesting because it's really not that commercial. But for them, it certainly is. Trey is writing hooks. He's writing hooks. I can see through the light. That's a hook. Yep. But they kind of screw it up by (laughs) taking this hook that, I mean, you could build a real song around that. You could build a hit song around that. And when I say screw it up, I mean commercial potential, right? I mean, the, the songs of, you know, you like it, a lot of people like it, yeah. but they take this hook and they just like throw it in a blender, you know, and all these different like polyrhythm things and stuff. It's cool, but it distracts you big time away from what could be a pretty powerful hook. I wonder if they had a do over, if they want to go back and make the song a little bit more focused and a little more cohesive from, from a rhythmic perspective so it could be played on the radio. Again, we call this the commercial album because it had a couple of songs that potentially could have been hits. This is not one of them, but it could have been from a pure composition standpoint. But I do enjoy that it's an album with frequent attempts at hooks. Like anytime you take somebody who's not used to writing hooks and ask them to do it, I always think you're going to get an interesting listen. So Free and Taste had both been played live before. And this next one is another example of a song that they had played live before and decided to put it on Billy Breathes for track five. And that is Cars, Trucks, Buses. 
nice instrumental. You can see Nubs right now is, uh, well, you can't see it, but he's really jamming on the air drums over there, especially that ride cymbal. Uh, cool instrumental. It is what it is. It's not uh, anything landmark, but uh, I think it's neat. I like when they get into that that funky stuff, which I think they pull off nicely. I mean, dude, one thing you know about me, I love a good instrumental interlude. Oh, yeah. I love it. Like, you know, when the earliest sounds I get into, yes, fragile with the 5% for nothing. Just a mess. What did we used to call it? The mess? Yeah, I think you did. Yeah. Yeah. But it was just this like 40 second instrumental interlude that came out of nowhere. This sort of reminds me of that. It's a little bit like the Beastie Boys with ill communication. You know, that that's what it kind of is consistent with in my yeah. mind is yeah. these little instrumentals that just kind of have. Well, not just ill communication. You know, check your head. They, they did these, these instrumental interludes all over the place. That's a good comparison. It's true. For sure. Yeah. They, they just, to me, they seemed a little funkier on ill communication. Maybe that's, maybe that's wrong. You can go back and listen to episode three if you want. Was, was that when we did check your head? It was early. Yeah, it was, it was one of the was, first few episodes. Yeah. But uh, for our full examination, if you will, check your head. But That's right. Yeah, I love a good instrumental interlude. I think it comes at a good place here. It reminds me, you know, you talked about when we were at Bonnaroo and we stopped in our tracks to see Mike Gordon play the bass. Sounds a little bit, you know, yeah. Benefito uh, Russo duo-like, you know? Yeah, good point. Good point. It sure does. Hey, you mentioned Yes. Speaking of Yes, this next song is called Talk. Nothing's ever so surrounds your thoughts and whole time lessons left are taught I can't sing my song I think it's nice, you know, that they're, I think it's cool how not every moment on this record was meant to blow you away, right? You do have the instrumental interlude that you talked about. And now you have just kind of a chill, you know, um, probably I would imagine pretty tray driven uh, acoustic bass song in talk. So, you know, typical fish record, it takes you in a lot of different directions, but again, I feel like it fits, you know, I feel like the production on this was consistent to where even when you're taken in different directions, you don't feel like you do on many fish records that you're just being taken in too many directions or like this sounds like it was recorded during a totally different session with a totally different team. So I like that about talk. It is what it is. It's kind of another, I almost considered it another interlude. This was something that, you know, hadn't been played out before. So something a lot of fans were hearing for the first time. Dude, I love talk. Easily one of my favorite songs in the album. It, it reminds me, you know, I think of Trey like sitting, you know, by a body of water, just writing very peaceful, you know, uh, it, it reminds me of it's probably uh, exactly how it happened. It's, <laughs> right? yeah, you know, totally <laughs> wouldn't be surprised. I love when fish gets into that, that atmosphere of like a, a Vermont river flowing, you know, downstream, just nice and easy. Do, do they have rivers in Vermont? Do, I hope they do. I don't know, but you, you, now you got me all relaxed. You know? I'm telling you, it's, it's so serene. I, I yeah. love when they get to this place. And it works well for, for Trey's vocal because he's got a, a very sweet voice yeah. and it works perfectly when you get this sort of fluid, liquidy kind of thing going on. I love it. Yeah. His voice is so like genuine, you know, it's, it's not the greatest voice you'll ever hear, but to your point, it matches like his personality because he's a pretty sweet guy and 
isn't trying ever to do too much, but but it's very distinctive. I I I love Trey's singing, to be honest with you. All right, we got one that had been played live before, and I think a good example of the way Fish could really create moments. You know, part of what's appealing about about Fish music and appealing about the fan base having their favorites and having you know the 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 songs and the moments that they love is truly creating moments within their composition. And I, and I think theme from the bottom captures that. Well, a, a live fan favorite here. I love that buildup, you know, and when Fishman comes in with those hard drums, I, I don't know if that was Lily White or the guys, but um, really, really neat way to close out the last minute or so of that song. It's a great live song. And I think it's, a, again, they were good at sort of creating these memorable moments within their songs that either you remember from a live show or in this case, you remember from something that comes in the middle of the album that I think is a pretty good pivot point and you know provides you with something nice to take away that these guys aren't just creating tracks and aren't just going for pure commercialism but they're also trying to create a mood and an ambiance and i think it's another example um and they've been able to take this same ambiance of this song and produce it while live but on the record i think they did a nice job of 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 theme from the bottom sort of accomplishing what i think they intended it to yeah i don't need to ask you if they still play this one live because this is sort of one of those live classic staples you know i think this shows up regularly for sure what i like is that it's one of the more rare examples where the band all wrote together and wasn't uh wasn't trey a guy who didn't write his own lyrics like, like yeah garcia yeah. and bob Weir, they, actually yeah. both he and mike gordon because mike gordon had some composition that he solely wrote contributing toward fish and both of them had lyricists so apparently everyone in the band sucked at writing lyrics. Well, uh, super but, jam band thing, you know, Jerry had a lyricist yeah. and Bob Weir had a lyricist, but this is all members got writing credit for this. And you can feel that band aspect. This does sound like them in their jam space creating together. And that might be one of the reasons why it's lived on as a live track. So I'm sure you've seen them play this live and I'm sure it's great live. Yeah, it really is. It's a great, and it's a great build toward that ending point. Those guys, you know, they certainly knew how to crescendo at times properly. And that's an old jam band live trick. And I think they did a good job of creating that here in the studio, which isn't always easy. Well, to your earlier point, here's a Mike Gordon song. Uh, also had a lyricist, just like Trey did. And it's Train Song. They were blurry and green out of space in between. With a depth and a form unclear. I really like, and who knows if this was them or Lily White, but that low end uh, cello or whatever that is sort of delivering the, the uh, aforementioned bottom to train song, I think is neat. I agree. I just thought it was a synth. You're right. It might be a cello. Could be a synth. Could be a synth, but, but delivering the bottom line there is cool. It's a good layer. I think it's needed. Otherwise it may get a little boring. Yeah. Um, Yeah. And you know, not all of Mike's contributions are my favorite, but you know, I, I think again, you're making a lot of waves here on this record and creating a lot of different ambiance directionally. And I, you know, I like it. 
It's not my favorite. Uh, it's a little ditty. I do like that low end. That's a good call. That kind of makes it for me, actually. If it weren't for that, I, I would definitely pass it up. But this was one of those in the CD days. I might just, you know, next. Uh, yeah. Because the, the album gets into some more interesting things after this, for sure. Well, this next one is interesting in, in fish folklore because they didn't play it live for 22 years after this record came out and then decided one day to pull it out. And I guess it was pretty cool. It's very pure in its, you know, composition and production. It's sort of what takes you into a little bit of a longer, um, I guess, for this album standards, bit more epic piece with the title track. But before we get there, we get through Bliss. Again, great low end there. I'm going to go ahead and up and take it into Billy Breeze because it does serve as a little bit of a prelude to it. So let's go right into the next track, which I think Bliss was really intended to set up, which is Billy Breeze. cool it's got some movement to it um you know it's got some different parts it's got some kind of sweet ambience to it but also as we're listening to this section that we're kind of fading off from uh some moments where there's some depth and a little bit of intensity some great piano work from page i feel like we're saying that a lot he's definitely the unsung hero of this band in many cases but um, the way Bliss and Billy Breeze kind of work together, I think is pretty cool. It's a song he wrote, Trey wrote about his daughter, which obviously is a cool element to it. So I don't know that this is one that they play a lot, Nub. I don't know that it's one that Fish fans will think of a lot. But what do you think of the title track? I'm, I'm, I always have that track I'm particularly interested in. What do you think of this one? I think you nailed it, intensity. This is where things get a little more serious. I, I, I do like Fish's whimsical thing. But I love when they write really serious, focused music with some intensity. And this is a great example of that. Again, Page is, is sparkling here. I mean, his, his piano is such an important part. It reminds me a little bit of Genesis. You know, people always said that Phil is Phil, but Tony Banks is like the true irreplaceable member of Genesis. Mm, yeah. Page brings a little bit of that to the table. I mean, could you imagine this band without him, without his, his layers and his melodies and just that trademark piano tone that he, plays with. I mean, he's super important. I love Billy Breathes. I think it's a good late album kind of gem, maybe even a little bit of a pinnacle because I do like the way that Bliss sets it up and the way that those two songs work together. So yeah, there's a really, I, I, I don't know whether they ever play it, but they should play it every once in a while. It'd be a good one to trickle in here and there. Cause I think the, you know, longtime hardcore fans would enjoy it for sure. I, I really love this song. Hey, how did Tony play at that Genesis show you went to? Oh, was he great? Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Of course. I bet, you know, with, uh, and you mentioned it, you, you mentioned that Rutherford was on fire too. I bet that with Phil not being able to drum and him being pretty immobile and those type of things, even though his son kicks ass, I bet that Mike and Tony just stepped up their game even further, if I had to guess. Would you agree? No doubt. 
Yeah, no doubt. Absolutely. And they both look like a million bucks. I mean, they yeah. really do. And they, they sound great, you know, but yeah, they, they definitely picked up some of the, you know, some of the slack for Phil, just not really being able to do much and certainly not be able to play the drums. Yeah. We're going to turn this into a Genesis podcast, you know, always. <laughs> <laughs> Let's do all three of these at once as well, because they're sort of two short interludes and then the closer, which is obviously a, a very well-known fish song. So we start it with swept away. Intrudes all day till I'm finally swept away. I'm finally swept away. I'm finally swept away. Now I hate that this is a minute and fifteen second song. Like it's it's awesome. Why didn't they turn this into a full song? Hundred percent agree, man. One hundred percent agree. And I know. again, this is where these guys just drive you nuts. The next one is, and we'll talk about all three of these, but the next one is steep. Okay, this one I'm glad is only a minute and a half, so the opposite. But both of these sort of short interludes take you into a certain fish favorite and the closer of Billy Breathes, and that is, oh, Prince Caspian. sort of takes you out of Billy Breathes in a rather memorable fashion. This is a song that Fish fans love and and they play live all the time and you know they had played before so there was some familiarity to it but I think they do a good job Um, Swept Away being a short interlude is ridiculous it's so good Steep could have just gone without that one and then, you know, I think they do the job they need to on Prince Caspian to wrap up the album. So uh, now what are your thoughts on that sort of final trifecta that takes you into the final track? Well, my one thought is, oh, come on, just yeah, oh, <laughs> to be Prince Caspian. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah, just a yeah. lot of that going on. Yeah. yeah, I agree completely on Swept Away. It's it's like a, the, this, the scratch that never quite gets itched. Yeah, well, yeah. But yeah, Caspian, you could see again it, why it's a good live song, interactive, I'm sure. Uh, you know, <laughs> but uh, I think a nice summation to an album that, you know, I, I'm sure if you ask hardcore fish fans, there's going to be people who say, oh, I don't like Billy Breeze. You know, it's too, it's too polished, right. you know, it's too, but I, I guess that's one of the things I really, really like about it. And the conclusion is a fitting one for that. You know, there's a couple things on here that have lasted long into their live set, but for the most part, the polish on the album is there top to bottom. And I think you really feel Lily White again in that closing three tracks, especially with the Caspian bits. So 
it wraps up an album that I'm glad we got a chance to talk about because it sure is an interesting one in the fish catalog and a very interesting one from the nineties. Well, it certainly is one uh, to your point for fish fans and, and certainly one for those that just follow this genre as a whole. I think it's one that's worth talking about, worth discussing, worth debating. Nubs, do you think it mattered? I, I think it mattered because one of the only reasons we're still talking about fish is this record. I have to imagine that this gave them a boost financially and in terms of kind of their mainstream quote unquote audience that lasts into today. You know, I don't think I would still be interested in fish if we weren't for free and the Billy breathes album and the tours that came from it. This took them up a level. It did elevate the awareness of the band and it made them a little more tangible. And I think it's a significant part of their catalog from a studio album perspective. And you know, if you, if you're into these jam bands, listen to the studio albums, you know, and this is, that's one of the other reasons I think it matters. It's a reminder that these studio albums are worthy. We talked about that with Bayless, you know, don't just get hooked on the live experience and spinning around and all that stuff. It's, it's about the music and the studio albums are a very, very important part of capturing where these bands are at musically at a given time. So I think it matters, dude. I really do. What do you think? I think it's a good example of getting close, but sort of no cigar in terms of, I think what, what some at least originally wanted to do with this record. I think musically they wanted this to break through. You can tell by the first three tracks that there's commercial intention here. But whether it was the band or whether to your earlier point, it was the band's management or whoever, I I think that they always were almost paranoid about not wanting to get too unorganic or too commercial. And that's okay. I mean, that's certainly been part of their charm over the years. But I think that whether it's the uh, album cover or sort of the branding of it or sort of some of these interludes that could have been songs or whatever it may be, you can tell that there was hesitation. And I think that that's part of what's always held fish back a little bit from being overly commercial. And listen, I don't think they ever wanted to be. So this is not a criticism or, oh boy, they're so stupid. I mean, they've been around for a long time. They still sell out their shows. They've made more you know, right decisions than wrong decisions. But I think it could have been an album that mattered in terms of really showing um, that the sort of prowess of a quote unquote jam band and a live band to really do something special in the studio. I think they could have got there. I think there are elements here that showed that they were in the in the ballpark, but they didn't quite close the deal. And I think that's more than anything probably due to the fact that they didn't want to. And that's okay. Every artist has their own goals, their own objectives. And, you know, back in 1996, it would have been really easy for them to you know, sell out or go to commercial or whatever. And you can tell that they tiptoed on that. They were hesitant on that and that's okay. But I do think that it took away a little bit from what could have been an album that really was special in terms of them generating uh, mass, you know, mainstream appeal and they've done just fine. And they obviously didn't need that, but that's the one thing I feel with Billy Breeze is that it it could have mattered a lot more historically than it does. And I think that's mostly because they sort of held themselves back and all in all, you know, while that could be viewed as a little bit disappointing from the standpoint of this had the ability to become a classic if done correctly, you know, instead it's, it's just a really good 
studio album and a good example along with till the medicine takes and some others of of a jam band being able to go in the studio and pull it off nicely all right now let's get your final cut this will be interesting do you have billy breathes by the great for some fish on the turntable in the collection collecting dust or for sale then what do you got buddy you know this album is like it's like the other side of the 90s the 90s was not just nirvana pearl jam and oasis there was all sorts of other things that happened in the 90s that people should find out about in that sense i have the album collecting dust because i think that a good collection has quintessential moments from each decade and the 90s, you can't just get cornered into that. It was just grunge and post-grunge and then like the pre-millennium stuff. There was a lot going on in the early and mid-90s that were very quintessentially 90s that did not sound anything like Nirvana. This is a terrific example of that. It's very, very 90s. The production is 90s. You're capturing a band at a place where the 90s were an influence on them. And that's why I think it's collecting dust because... It should be in there. It's not quality enough. You said it perfectly to listen to top to bottom regularly. It's not. There's too many things in there that never reach their potential. And that, that's sort of a fish thing, right? I mean, there's just always trying. They're always, they're always on that hamster wheel, just trying to run a little faster and complete whatever they're trying to complete. But yeah, I got it collecting dust for that reason, T. I, I'm interested. Where do you have it? I'm going to the for sale bin nub and and that's not because it's not good or because it doesn't have great moments, but you know, I don't know that there's a fish album for me that's beyond collecting dust, to be honest. And and I think the only one that probably is even in consideration for that or or possibly greater is Junta, because that's sort of the album that started it. That's got a lot of those classics and it's got it in a bare bones way that I think is is good. I don't think they really ever cracked the code. And even with this record, you know, there's too many moments of hesitation, too many moments where you can tell that they were maybe overthinking it. And I think you get that from the cosmetics of the album just as much as you do from the content. And, you know, again, that's okay. It's not to take away from this having really strong points, but I I don't have a need for this in my collection. Um, I think there are moments from it that you can pull. I think, you know, you mentioned a couple of really good songs. I think it's a great three track start, but I'm going for sale bin because I I don't know that besides Genta, there's a fish album that really would need to be in in my collection. And, you know, and it's one that I think could have been great. It's in some, in some cases you get a little bit of a vibe of disappointment because you realize if they would have gone all in how great and classic it could have been. Um, But Hey, you know, they're smart guys. They've figured it out. They've been around for multi-decade. And uh, so, you know, I think they've swung and missed on more of their studio albums than not. Um, but they are an outstanding band, a band that I love, a collection of musicians that's really special. And uh, I'm pretty sure me putting Billy Breeze in the um, for sale bin won't hurt their career at all. So. <laughs> I think they'll be okay. Yeah. <laughs> all right, Nub. Hey, why don't we check in with Dolores? You know, she's, I don't know, I don't even know, uh, it's been so long, you know, I, I, I kind of often wonder how she's doing. Dolores, how you doing over there? Let's see if we can wake her up. Everything good? Did you have a nice Christmas? Good holiday? Good new year? (laughs) Okay. Well, it seems like she's doing fine. Nubs, what's in your head, buddy? 
Man, good to hear from Dolores, I would say. But uh, yeah, round and round for me. So first would be uh, Supernova by Fear Factory, band that just put out a new album recently, but then immediately uh, lost the front man of the band. So go figure. But yeah, Supernova, that's one of their kind of more obscure songs that uh, popped down in the last week and always a jam. The before mentioned Genesis, but without Phil Collins, there must be some other way. My favorite song off of Calling All Stations, the 1997 album. Seems to be a theme right now, 1997. We, we've said 1997 on this show like 50 times. So it seems to be a running theme. And then, of course, it's winter. So I'm listening to a lot of metal. And that means Slipknot with the negative one, which was the lead single off of the Great Chapter album. So, T, that is what's uh, been in my head. I think I said round and round. In my head. T, what has been in your head? Oh, you blew it. You know, I mean, God, we, we got this far and <laughs> yeah. uh, no, no, uh, Time off hiccups, and here you go. You just screwed the whole the show. The rust up. finally shows. Yes. <laughs> uh, no, but you know, I, I mentioned earlier, I, I, I tend to sort of pile up different songs, and then I finally get around to sort of during the break, I went and I had like 10 that I had listed, and it's like you got to download these or make sure that they get in your collection. The first is by uh, Dion Warwick, Nub, and uh, that's called uh, No Night So Long. Great track. It'll bring a tear to your eye if you're not careful. We're okay. going very obscure today. That's I like right. It. I like it. The second is by a band called The Amity Affliction. I heard this on the uh, Metal Channel on Sirius, and it's called Like Love, which is a good jam. And uh, you know, sometimes when I'm when I'm working, I'll just turn that. Uh, I don't know if it's called Turbo or whatever, but uh, I'll get that one going. And then another one is the uh, the Clapton class. You know, I kind of liked some of that uh, '80s pop Clapton stuff, like Journeyman in that era. Uh, no alibi is a great song. It's in the way that you use it. And the other one that was kind of part of that was forever, man, which, uh, you know, it's a great rock and roll song, man. You know, it's, uh, it is what it is. I'm not a huge Clapton guy, but, uh, revel man, revel man, revel man, you know, it's good. I like it. So anyway, that's, what's in my head. Oh, I'm going to tack one more on there and that's goodbye by the spice girls. And that's, uh, because of the, uh, Peloton cool down that I've been doing a lot you ever, do you do the, do you do the five minute cool downs after that you do your rides no after my ride i'm oh, come done on. man nope come no on. i've never done the cool down i'll try one i'll try one. you gotta do the cool down and this spice girls cool down is outstanding it's uh it's their song goodbye which uh i didn't even know i mean something i didn't even know about but hey there it is spice girls okay all right buddy well no better way to wrap it up than with those uh those ladies um, but, uh, Hey, thanks. That was great. I great to be back on the team here, you know, doing, doing our thing, doing a regular episode. It's been a while. The last one we did was Pearl jam feels like months ago, probably was months ago, but, uh, nice to talk about fish with you nub and you know, maybe sometimes, maybe sometime in the future, we'll go see fish, we'll go, go see, see fish, fish. We'll go yeah. see fish. Yeah. <laughs> Good choice, man. Really love talking about it. And, uh, we'll see you again in a couple of weeks. Hey. Eh? We sure will. So keep in mind, we're, we're doing every two weeks. So we will see you in two weeks for episode 69. Okay. Is that right? 69, dude. We made it. We did it. Landmark episode. Landmark. For those of you that don't know, our whole goal, the whole reason for doing this podcast was to get to episode 69. That was it. Yes. Like, yes. Yeah. Nubs, you really, you, you really better bring the heat on that one. You know what I mean? Well, I'll be bringing the heat in episode yeah. 69. No well, 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 we will see you then for episode 69 in a couple of weeks. But in the meantime, we hope you enjoyed today's 
Yam Band Special. And we hope that you all are doing okay and staying safe out there. Watch the Omicron there, bud. Watch the cornhole, bud. All right? Be careful. All right? Yeah. And we'll see you in a couple weeks. <laughs> Here on Two Twins. Yeah, and an album. Y'all take care. Two Twins. Well, that's about it. That's all we have. I hope it wasn't too disappointing. We will see you on tour. Until then, take it easy.